Hey, um, I don't know about you guys, but I am um, just jumping right in. I'm, I'm an extremely impatient man, and I've been that way since I was a child. Um, it's somewhat of a spiritual gift. I've become really good at being impatient. Um, when I when I started driving, I remember back in uh, 1996, um, when when I went to the gas station, you used to not be able to to pay with a credit card at, at the gas pump. And, and so you had to walk in, it's, a, it was, it's like this practice, you would have to walk your credit card into the gas station. Sometimes they didn't even take a credit card, they took cash. So like, I don't even know if you guys ever have seen that, it's green, you know, it's kind of currency, it's, it's paper-like, you know, and you, you spend it sometimes, they give you change, like coins and stuff. <clears throat> this is like, you know, centuries ago, but they used to actually have to drive, uh, walk that into the gas station. And now in 2012, uh, I find myself getting frustrated when I when I drive up into a gas station and they don't have the, where, where it says we do not accept credit cards and the, and the slots covered with tape. I, in that moment, I want to scream because I, I'm impa- I get impatient if I have to just walk ten steps into the gas station and, and pay with cash or pay with a credit card. It's so frustrating. Uh, we're, we're very impatient people. I remember when I was uh, growing up, and again, I'm not an old man. I'm, I'm a pretty young man, by, by at least by my own standards. I'm 31, about to be 32 next month. And I remember a time, again, not very long ago, when um, they used to have a knob on the television screen. So you didn't actually have remotes. Uh, they had just a big knob, and you would turn that knob, um, and it, there were like five stations, okay? And maybe only half of them worked, depending on how your bunny ears work. You know, to get the foil out and try to, you know, play all these games to get the stations to come in. Now, I know that seems like a long ago, but it's actually just like 20 years ago. And they didn't have remote controls. And so um, they came out with this new invention uh, called a, like a set-top cable box. And so when I was probably, um, you know, 8 or 10 years old, they came out with a set-top cable box. And it would sit on top of your television now, so you didn't have to do the knob anymore. And it had a slider. And you would slide this button, and it had like 50 channels. And you'd slide this slider. Everybody remember? Everybody adults remember this? Okay. You would slide this thing back and forth. And it was awesome, but still, you had to get up off the couch and change the channel. Now, I, I was convinced that um, that God gave parents children just for that very reason, that we would get up off the couch and go slide that thing off, because every time my parents wanted to change the station, it was, hey boy, get up, go change the station. Hey boy, get up, go change the I mean, I would hear that 20 times, to the point where I would just know, like I would instinctively know, it's my turn to get up and change the station, and I was frustrated with that. And so now I just sit back and I click my remote control and it's amazing getting I get frustrated and like my remote control goes out of batteries and I'm sitting there clicking I just throw it up against the wall and smash it. I'm just angry. And I'm, I'm you know so impatient with this. Um, whereas 20 years ago you know people would have would have died to have you know Wi-Fi like I, I get frustrated here at camp a little bit because um, this is kind of a big week for our church plant. So if you guys know that I'm plant, we're planting a church in Indianapolis and this weekend we're moving into a building and it, there's a lot of contracts that have to be signed in order for us to move into this building, in order, in order for us to get out of a house and stop looking like a cult. We have to get legit, get a building. So we're moving out. Uh, we're putting the purple Kool-Aid away. And we're getting into a building. And um, so I'm trying to fill out these contracts, and I can't because um, the Wi-Fi has been a little bit slow. And so you know, I feel like I'm back in 1998 with like the uh, you know, dial-up speed internet. And, and I get frustrated. I find myself just being so impatient. And again, 10 years ago, I would have killed for 3G. I would have killed for just E, you know? And now I'm just, I'm, I'm impatient because we are, we're just an impatient people. I don't know if you're like that. You're probably not like that. Um, but, I, but I'm like that a little bit with different things. Um, my kids are very impatient. They get it from, from me. You know, so, so kids, when they get impatient, well, in the car, they'll be like, Daddy, 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 Daddy. 
daddy. Like, like it's about having a hearing problem. I'm just ignoring them. And so I'm not going to lie. There's times in my, in my car where I just turn the music up, right? So I, I, I grab their knob and I turn that thing all the way down. If you're a parent, don't judge me because I know you've done it before. Uh, you turn the knob up and you just try to ignore them. And you go, what, 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 what? And, and we're just, just impatient. Now, if you're going to be a person that lives in the kingdom of God, and you're going to be the kind of person we've talked about this week, and you're going to live the kind of kingdom life that we've talked about throughout um, the last several nights, um, impatience is antithetical to um, living a kingdom life. Being, being a person who lives, you're going to have to be a person that begins to live by faith. And, and that's hard for some of us. Let, let, just to be honest, it's hard for us to live by faith. Because we want it now. We want everything now. We want an instant, right? We want instant Jesus. We want instant kingdom. We want we want it now. You know, so it's hard for us to wait. And, and what I think, um, if you were to be honest with yourself about maybe, my, and my, my impression is I talked to some of you guys this week and I talk about what you're learning and how God's speaking to you and, and what God's doing in your heart. My, my fear for you is that some of you you heard the message on, on Saturday night about the kingdom, and you get really excited because you, you think about the kingdom, and yes, I want that, and yes, I want to follow God, and yes, I want there to be that pursuit, and yes, I want that freedom. And then you come in last night, and we just talk about how you're just wicked and evil and rebels, and that, that wasn't that kind of stung a little bit. So now, now um, night three, we begin to <clears throat> kind of pull back a little bit and ask these questions because we feel a little bit of the guilt and the shame begin to rise up because... You know, our cell phones are not working here. Um, we're away from our, you know, maybe our friendship groups. We're outside, you know, and we're just kind of insulated here at camp. And we begin to actually feel, for the first time, this really foreign thing called guilt. This this thing that we we rarely, as a matter of fact, we work hard to make sure that we don't have these kind of feelings because we like to keep ourselves busy. We crank up the noise. We try to drown out um, the guiltiness that sometimes will we'll kind of creep in when we really listen to the voice of God. And so my fear for you guys is that, um, you're beginning to ask yourself as the weight of this kind of begins to mount in you that you're beginning to ask yourself questions like man is it, is it really worth it to just feel this guilt is it really worth it to really sell out to the kingdom you know and some of you might be saying man I hear what you're saying about the kingdom I hear what you're saying about the rule and the reign of Christ but it sure I look around at my life and I look around at my friends and it sure doesn't seem like we're winning it doesn't seem like we're winning it doesn't seem like I'm winning in life and I'm trying real hard, and I'm pursuing, and I'm kind of pressing in, but it just doesn't seem like it's working. And then I'm under so much pressure. Pressure from my parents, pressure from my friends to be a certain kind of person. I mean, nobody really knows the true me, this on the inside, like who I really am. Because I'm under so much pressure, and I feel so much stress to be this person at school, and to be this person on my ball team, and to be this person at home, and to be this, I mean, it's just... I have all these selves that are out there, and none of them are really me. And I feel this pressure and stress. And, and, and besides that, everyone around me seems to not really care that much about Jesus. Everyone around me in my school, man, they're just kind of living their own life and doing their own thing. And it doesn't seem to be affecting them that much. And they don't really care about the kingdom of God. And they seem to be doing just fine. Why can't I just be that person? Why can't I just be the person who didn't really care? Because it's much easier to not care, right? It doesn't require any effort to not care. Anybody can be a careless, indifferent person. You can walk around and pretend like you got it all together. I mean, that's easy to do, right? And yet we look around and we see that and we're like, man, I, I wish I could just be like that. But I, I can't. And so I look around and, you know, is it worth it? Like, is it worth it for me to make the leap? 
to really jump into the kingdom and really give myself to the rule and the reign of Christ, to really begin to live a different life, is it worth it? So even now you're beginning to measure that out of your mind and to say, if I do this, what is this going to mean for me? Like, what are the implications if I really surrender my life, if I really give myself wholly to this guy who loves me, this kingdom that you're talking about, and that he's promises that are out there for me? Like, is it worth it? I just want you guys to just look right at me right now. Everybody look at me. So I want you to know, yes, it is. It is. It's worth it for you guys to give yourself to the kingdom. It's worth it for you guys to give yourself to the kingdom. It's worth it for you ladies to throw yourself in to the kingdom. It's worth it. It is worth it. It's worth it. Matter of fact, there's nothing more worthy that you can do than to surrender your life to Christ. And I'm not just saying that for a person who doesn't believe in Christ, who's not a Christian. I'm talking about if you are a Christian, and you call yourself a Christian, maybe you were raised in the church, in the church, and I just still say to you, yes, it's worth it. And so, let's just look at this together. I, I just want to do this quick tonight. I, I want to just, because I know that some of you, um, you've been thinking about this, you've been chewing on this, and, and, and man, I just want to tip you over the edge tonight and kind of push you over and just say, yes, it is worth it. And I think there's a way that you can look at faith where it's worth it for you to make this decision, to make this leap, to jump in all the way without reservation, without uh, abandon, with, with, with reckless abandon. And so I want, to, I want to show you in the story of a man who, who really did this. God called him to, to kind of jump into the kingdom, become a part of the kingdom, and he jumped in and he did it. And I think if you were to ask him now, you know, thousands of years later, or maybe when you get to heaven one day, was it worth it? I think he would say yes. Okay, so go to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to read several um, passages of Scripture, and I want you to see um, what God did in the life of this guy. Again, you know these stories. These are not new stories. Genesis chapter 12 was a man named Abram, who later would become Abraham. And it's interesting because we talked about the kingdom, how God is establishing this kingdom where He is at the center, where He defines all the relationships in this kingdom, where He is the center, kind of the centripetal pull of this kingdom, and everything finds its definition and purpose in Him. Um, that, that's what it means to live in the kingdom, to find, again, to find yourself under the rule and the reign of Christ. And He starts in the garden, and then the kingdom's lost. Remember last night in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they jack it all up, and so they mess up the, the kingdom, and the kingdom's fallen, and now we live in this kind of post-Genesis 3 world where we are on this side of the fallenness and the brokenness of this world. We experience um, you know, all these things. And so, so now God is going to begin the process of restoring and piecing back together this kingdom that He so desperately wants for us to live in. And he does it in a really interesting way. He doesn't go to a religious guy to start the rescue mission. He doesn't go to a pastor. He doesn't go to a priest. He doesn't go um, to... Really, it's interesting. He goes to a guy who is a total pagan. Abram was a guy who was wealthy. He was influential. Me, he had lots of you know uh, animals, livestock. Like I don't know, that didn't really mean anything to me. I, I, I live in Indianapolis, so you know, uh, I, I guess in Indiana maybe. Uh, but I just moved from South Florida, so you don't really get measured uh, by how many livestock you own. Maybe maybe Tennessee. I don't know. Maybe Knoxville, uh, Chattanooga. I'm not really sure how you guys measure wealth. But in those days, they measured wealth by how many livestock you had. So he had thousands and thousands of livestock, which meant that he uh, you know he was he was rolling the dough. And so. So God comes to this man who is a pagan. He doesn't know God. He has no religious history at all. And he begins his rescue mission with this very unlikely, undeserving man who was not really even looking for it at all. 
And so if you're a person that would say, well, God can't use me or God won't speak to me because I don't have this history, I don't have this pedigree, my dad wasn't a deacon, my, my, my dad wasn't a pastor, or man, I, God, I'm just an unlikely candidate, great, then you're going to relate to Abraham because God comes to him and he begins his rescue mission and he calls him to follow him in Genesis chapter 12. And so in the midst of all this judgment for the rebellion that we talked about last night and the flood that follows and then the, um, the Tower of Babel and these events that are happening, in the midst of judgment, we see a gracious and a merciful God who is ready to receive and to begin um, the process of restoration and restoring what's been lost in the kingdom. So Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, I will, and, and in him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God is unfolding this idea of the kingdom. He says, I'm going to come to you, Abraham. I want you to go out from among your family. I want you to leave your hometown. I want you to leave you know, Chattanooga. I'm not going to give you a destination point. No, no Google Maps here. No, no Tom Tom. I just want you to go. And I'm, and I'm not going to tell you where you're going, but I'm going to make a great nation of you. So God says the kingdom, is, he's going to make this nation out of Abraham. So he's forming a people out of this man named Abraham, the Jewish nation, a nation of whom Abraham will be the father. Now, flip over. Three more chapters to Genesis chapter 15, and he continues to build on this promise to Abraham. So the kingdom is going to come through one who will be in this nation of Abraham, who will be a child of the seed of Abraham, of Abram at this point. And then in Genesis 15, he begins to unpack it a little bit more. He says, After these things, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, This man shall not be your heir. Your own very son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look towards the heavens. Number the stars if you are able to number them. Of course he's not. And he said to him, So will your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God continues to unfold this promise, and he says, not only am I going to make a nation out of you, but the way that I'm going to make a nation out of you, the way that I'm going to bring this kingdom to pass, is that I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you an heir where there is no heir. So in those days, if you didn't have a son, you had no heir, you had nobody to pass off your inheritance to, Abraham was a wealthy man, and so he looked at God and he said, hey, um, that, that sounds great, but we're kind of missing one crucial piece to this, this promise that you give him, like a, a, a son. And, and the Bible will go on to say later that Abraham was basically as good as dead. So we know that he was around 99 years old, and we, I know that in those days people lived longer, but the Bible says that Abraham was on death's doorstep. He was close to dying, and so um, God says, I'm going to give you a son. And then he introduces this concept of faith. And so the Bible says that Abraham believed God's promises for what was coming in the future, and the Bible says that he credited, God credited to him as righteousness. So God's going to introduce this thing. He said to be a part of the kingdom involves believing something that has not yet come to pass. It's the opposite of impatience, right? It's, it's being patient. It's waiting for something. There's a longing for something. There's a putting our trust into something that we cannot currently see. Namely, in this case, that God was going to make this great nation called the Jews out of Abraham, where there was currently not even a child. And so the kingdom is going to come through those who receive it by faith. 
not for those who are impatient. Okay? Now, turn over again to Genesis 17. One more uh, passage here in the Old Testament, and I want to flip over to the New, and I want you to see what the New Testament has to say about Abraham. Genesis 17. So we know that God's going to make a nation out of Abraham. We know that he's going to give Abraham a son, and that one day the rescuer, the Messiah, will come out of the seed of Abraham, and he will rescue his people from their sins, and he will restore the kingdom. And then Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abraham was, again, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, and he said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face, Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. Uh, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Signifying kind of a break with the past. So God's giving him a new identity, right? He's saying, you're no longer this man, you're now going to be this man. That's what happens when we come into a relationship with Christ. God, God wipes away our previous identity and says, you're no longer defined by this. Whatever this thing is for you that's in your past, you're not defined by this. Okay, You're defined now by me. You're, you're my child. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So now he unfolds a new piece to this kingdom. And he says, now um, the rescue is going to come. The rescue is going to come uh, from a line of kings. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow night, how this kind of unfolds into this line of the kings. But he said, the rescue is going to come now from you and out of you, Abraham, is going to come not just peasant people, not just even wealthy people, but actually kings. So in your line, they're going to be kings. You're going to be a monarch. You're going to be rulers. They're going to come out of you, and that, that's where the Messiah is going to come. And he also says that um, I'm going to be the God of your and uh, of your posterity. The people that come after you, I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people. So now he begins to unpack this idea that a relationship with God is now coming through faith in His promises. That's what the kingdom is going to be about. It's going to be about faith. It's going to be about promises. It's not going to be about what's here now, what we can see with our eyes, what we can touch. It's going to be about something that's coming in the future. Now, turn over. One more time to Hebrews chapter 11, because Hebrews actually goes back and will tell us, will interpret for us what's going on here in this story with Abraham. So flip over the New Testament, go almost all the way to the end of your Bible, right before um, Revelation, a couple chapters before, a couple books before, right before James. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to see what the New Testament has to say. And here's what I want you to consider tonight. I want you to think about this question. What is the nature of a faith? That has, been so, that has been activated by a God-given vision for the kingdom. What is the nature of a faith that believes the promises of the kingdom and grabs hold of those promises and claims those promises and lives those promises right here and right now? In other words, is it really worth it to believe? Is it really worth it to trust? And I think you're going to see the answer is yes. Okay, so let's read this together. Now, what is faith? We talk about that all the time. Have faith in this. Believe this. Trust this. What is faith? Well, the Bible's going to tell you what faith is. It's actually going to define it right here in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. Now, faith is assurance. That's a key word. Circle that word in your Bible, okay? That's not going to um, strike you down if you write your Bible, okay? You can do that. Circle it. Assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Circle that word. Hope and assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
The conviction of things not what? Seen. Not seen with our eyes. Not seen in our experience. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation or their approval. Now, what is the nature of a faith that has been activated by a vision for God's kingdom? First thing. Faith is stirred up by discontent. So if you're taking notes, faith is stirred up by discontentment. Now, that sounds counterintuitive because you're always being told to be content, right? You're always being told to be content. Be content with your lot in life. Be content with how much money you have. Don't want things. Now, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be content. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying there's a, there is a certain kind of discontentment that leads us to press into Jesus in, in a deeper way. And so faith is stirred by discontentment. Now, that's the essence. That's really what faith is. He says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. When you hope for something, you, by definition, it means that you don't have that thing in which you're hoping for, right? So if you hope to one day have a lot of money, what's that mean? It means right now you're living off ramen noodles, right? If you're a college student. Um, if you hope one day to be married, that means right now um, you're, living on, you're, living, you're living in the Facebook world of relationship. You have no ring on your finger. You have no date. By the way, ladies, um, you are not, uh, a guy does not really love you unless you have a ring and you have a date, right? Okay, so let's just let's get that straight. Okay, so if you, if you hope to be married one day, if you hope to be married one day, it means you're currently not married. You are discontent with your state of life as a single person. You're frustrated. You want to be married one day. And so you're hoping one day that you will find that man, you will find that lady who's going to fulfill all the deepest longings in your heart. That, that you know, she completes me. That we just said last night was ridiculous, right? Uh, but you're looking for that. If you hope one day to have a college degree, that means you don't have one. If you hope one day to make the ball team, that means you're currently not on it. If you hope one day, and so that's the nature of hope. It's a discontentment in the current state of life that leads us to, to move to action into the future. And so um, what I want to say to you guys is um, I think one of the missing pieces in a lot of your faith is um, there's no discontentment. There's no longing for more. So um, the nature of faith and, and really walking in the kingdom and understanding what it means to live by faith is this idea that there's more out there than what you currently have. And I believe that most of you um, don't pay attention to the signals, you don't pay attention to the signs, and, and you don't live in the state of discontentment. You are very content with where you're at. And, and again, we can get so busy that we cannot, we can fail to look inside our hearts and to really see, is there a longing for more? And that's actually one of the marks of a maturing Christian is, is a sense of, I mean, Paul will write in Philippians 3, one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, and he, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He, he says, I want to know Christ now. Not 10 years ago when I was, you know, in GAs and RAs. Not 10 years from now, but right now, I want to know Christ. That even the Apostle Paul could write that I am not content. And, and so I think last time I mentioned that sometimes the passive wrath of God can be that God allows us to experience the weight and the consequences of the way that we're living our lives. It's not that he's going to strike us down with a lightning bolt or he's going to you know, just torch us and put us up in flames. But maybe sometimes God will allow us to walk in a season of just security and peace to the point where we really don't even see our need for God. And I believe that some of you are there right now. Like some of you, there's no discontent. And so there's no pressing in. Because you think, man, I got it. I got it. Man, I'm, I'm checking the boxes. I go to church. I read my Bible. I try to be a good person. I try to be a good son. I try to be a good teammate. And so we can live in this kind of external world of morality. But really at the, at the heart level, there's no, there's no pressing in. There's no discontentment. There's no longing for more. There's just a satisfaction for more. 
And man, can I just tell you, that's a dangerous place to be. When you think you've arrived, when you think you know it all, when you think you know all the verses, when you think you understand what it means to, I mean, that's, that's a dangerous place to be. And so there always ought to be a sense of discontentment. What happens when you get discontent is you begin to press in. You begin to press in to Jesus. When you realize that something's broken, that something's wrong, that I'm falling short, when you take the time and you create some margin in your life, and maybe just for the first time in a while, you can get honest with yourself and really look into your heart. I mean, I believe that a lot of us don't even want to look into our hearts. And so we keep ourselves busy. We keep our iPods in. We kind of keep our heads down. We stay busy. We go to practice. We do our homework. We do everything in the world except take the time to actually sit down. And then when we have quiet moments like at camp, man, there's weight. There's weight. There's anxiety. Like I've heard some of you this week say, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. You know why that waits there? Because for the first time in maybe months or years, you've looked inside your heart and you've seen some wickedness, and you're like, bro, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. And so we've had this conversation this week. Well, you, you've not been discontent. So when we're discontent, it pushes us forward. So discontent is a good thing. Faith stirs discontentment. It's the nature of hope. The second thing that I think um, the writer of Hebrews would say here is that, um, and this is really the important one, that faith anticipates a better day. Faith anticipates a better day. When I was in high school, I told you guys that I, um, my, my number one goal in life is to be a college athlete. I wanted to play college ball. So from the time I was little, I grew up, I was a Kentucky fan. Now, don't hiss at me or whatever, but I know I got my boy in the back here, Kentucky fan, basketball coach at Cleveland, my man back there. So I grew up watching, you know, Tony Delk, and I grew up watching these guys play ball, and I wanted to just be a college athlete. And so um, that, that, that vision for the future created in me a desire to do certain things. So I would spend my summers very uh, very disciplined. You know, uh, I would shoot 500 free throws, and I had an Excel spreadsheet. And I would keep a track and a log on how many free throws I shot. And I would I would do if, if I had any spare time at all, I was out in my garage with my weights on. I had ankle weights on, and I had kind of chest weights on, and I was doing taps. So I was doing taps out in my garage, and I was I was shooting jump shots. And every day now, now you may look at me. Some of you watch me play ball day and go, man, where did that go? I don't know. That's been 10 years ago. So whatever. But but I know back in the day that I was pushing hard because I had a vision for the future. I was anticipating something that. I wanted to accomplish, and then I was willing to do anything to get it. I was willing to, to forsake women, and I did. I broke up with many girls because they were infringing on my basketball routines and habits. I was willing to forsake food. I was willing to forsake anything if it meant that I could have a shot at playing college basketball. And you know what? I did, by God's grace. I was allowed to play basketball my freshman year of college. Man, I loved it. It was, it was a great experience. And... and you know, if you, I don't know if you guys have read um, or heard of Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. In his book, Outliers, he talks about something called the 10,000-hour rule. It's an interesting concept. Being a, a sports guy, I just thought, found it very interesting. He said that when they, they've done studies of, of uh, you know, top-tier, top-shelf athletes in the different fields, or top-shelf musicians, top-shelf violinists, or people like Beethoven, who are just incredibly gifted people. And what they found in, 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 in almost every case, without exception, was that um, it had very little to do, although there is something to be said for natural ability. But in most cases, when you look at athletes like Michael Jordan, again, who was cut from the team as a freshman or sophomore, when you look at um, top-shelf musicians, when you look at top-shelf people that had these unbelievably, they seem like unbelievable giftings and platforms, um, that those people on average spent 10,000 hours perfecting their craft, 10,000 hours running sprints to be an Olympic athlete, 10,000 hours of shooting free throws to be an NBA basketball player. Now, if you look at your life, and if I were to be honest about me, I don't know that I've done 10,000 hours, 10, hours of anything except sleep and eat, okay? That's just about it for me. 
But but they said that they've done they put ten thousand hours to perfecting their craft, perfecting that throw, perfecting that shot, perfecting that you know that that playing of that instrument. Because they, they have a vision for the future that involves something that they don't currently have. There's discontent that's pushing them to act a certain way. That's really what faith is. That's really what faith is. Faith is not that much different than our everyday experience. It's just a different kind of faith. It's faith in a different thing. It's, it's hoping for something different. It's anticipating a better day. Look at what Hebrews is going to say if we go on down. Go down to verse 8 here in chapter 11. Chapter 8, uh, chapter 11, verse 8. Now look at what Abraham, look at the kind of faith that Abraham had. Look at when God called him to go to the country he'd never been to, and he said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. Look at the way that the Bible uh, explains to us what was happening there in the heart of Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham, and again, this was written thousands of years later, interpreting back for us what happened in Genesis. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now this is an interesting verse, verse 10. For he was looking, what? Forward, not backward at where he come. He's looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now skip on down to verse 13. Now, now here's what the writer of Hebrews says. These all died in faith. So Abraham died without ever seeing or tasting the promised land in all of its fullness like his posterity would. These all died in faith having not received the things promised. you think that was frustrating for Abraham to be given this promise and not see it fulfilled? Of course. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. They would have gone back. If Abraham would have really stopped to think about what he left behind, he would have gone back. But look at what it says in verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. This is the nature of faith. Faith anticipates a better day. Faith anticipates something that's out there. It's a vision for the future. Let me just define faith for you. Faith is a vision for the future that causes you to act a certain way in the present. Faith is, is, is being given the eyes of faith is being able to see something in the future that others around you cannot see, and it, and it causes you to act a certain way in the present. So if you have a vision for your future, it causes you to act in a certain way that's different than if you just have your eyes on the present. It's what causes dads to um, discipline their children, by the way, unless they're abusive. You know why parents discipline their children? Because they want something for them when they're 15, 20, 25, 30 years old. It's what causes husbands to invest in their marriage. Because they have a vision for their marriage, hopefully, that goes beyond just the immediate. And so it causes them to love their wife, to serve their wife, because they want to grow old. And when they're 70 years old, they want to be sitting in that rocking chair, drinking coffee, and making fun of young people. That's just what they want to be doing, right? Playing golf. They want to be there. And so it causes you to treat your wife a certain way. It's why you can. It's why, as a, as a teenager, if you can live a life of faith, you can guard your your, your purity, your sexuality, because you have a vision for the future of, of freedom in the context of a covenant relationship where you're known 
when you're truly known, not just being used by some guy who's trying to get something from you, not just being used from some girl who's trying to get something from you. And that vision for the future of freedom and, 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 a, and no shame and no guilt causes you to say no to certain temptations now in the present because you know that if you'll wait, if you'll save yourself, if you'll just be faithful and true to the Lord, that one day there's going to come something that's better than this temporary fleeting pleasure relationship. Faith anticipates a better day. Here's the problem. And here's the problem you guys face. And this is my biggest fear for teenagers. There's just an onslaught of temptation that puts pressure and weight on you to live right now. Right? Isn't that true? Is that what it's not like to be a teenager? I mean, to have so much pressure and weight to be facing just an onslaught. I mean, onslaught after onslaught of temptation. Whether that be pornography for guys, right? And so it's just an onslaught. Like, you can't even open your email without something crazy being sent to you now. I mean, it used to be you had to walk down to the store, grab a magazine, if you want to do something like that. I mean, there, were, you had, you had a, you, there was a process to do that. Now you just open up. I mean, there's just temptation after temptation. And technology just brings that to you in a way. I mean, text messaging. You have instant gratification. You have instant communication all night long. Like, you guys, it's amazing to me that teenagers can have, like, 30,000 texts in a month. Like, who in the world could you? I mean, how is that even possible? And so you're just inundated by just constant, you're just, you're just constantly, and, then, and so the temptation has been not to think about the future, not to think about who you want to be 20 years from now, but to get caught up in just surviving. Like, you're like, man, it's just enough for me to survive. It's enough for me to go to school and survive. It's enough for me to survive in my home front. It's enough for me just to be in survival mode. And so I don't have time to look to the future. I can't look to the future. i gotta, I got to survive because there's all this pressure on me to be somebody, and, and I just am surviving. And so we lose that vision for the future and we get focused on the here and the now. And, and that's just a bad place to be. It's a bad place to be. Because you get caught up in things um, that men 20 years from now, you're going to be correct. And so what I had the privilege of doing is now as a pastor, working with lots of people in their 20s and 30s. And it's amazing to me. Um, I meet 20-year-olds. We've got people in our church plant um, very successful guys who work for the Pacers, guys who travel around the country, who make six figures. You know what's amazing to me as, as, as 25, 30, 35-year-old men that I talk to a lot? It's amazing to me that they will um, they will look back on their teenage years and their early adult years as just some of the greatest years of regret of their life, and they wish that they had done things differently and they hadn't gotten caught up, caught up in these different things. And even as 25-year-old men who are successful and making lots of money, um, they'll say to me, man, it's just it's not doing it for me. Like, I'm making $150,000. That sounds pretty good, right? Sounds pretty good to make $150,000. They've got esteem. They've got a reputation. They're well-known in their field, and yet there's just a sense in which, man, just living in the moment is just absolutely crushing them. So they're going out, and they're hitting the bars, and they're partying, and they're trying to escape, and they're having, you know, all these crazy sexual encounters because they're living in the now. You know what's amazing to me? I'm 31 years old. I'm going to be 32 next month. I told you guys that already. See, I'm already getting old. Um... You know, at 31 years old, um, you know whose opinion doesn't matter to me now? Anybody that I went to high school with. Like, do you th there's not a day that goes by as a 31-year-old man, a husband, and a dad of four kids where I go, man, if I do this, what is, what's Travis going to think? What, what's, what's Brittany, this girl that I dated in the high school, like, what's she going to think about this decision that I made? There's not a day that goes by. And yet, right now where you guys sit, I mean, is that not your every day? 
You're, you're managing your schedule based on what's this dude going to think? If I do this, and what, if I don't go to this, and if I don't go to this thing, if I don't act a certain way, and I don't get in this relationship, what are they going to think? Man, can I just tell you like 10 years from now, five years from now, you are not going to care. It's not going to matter. Uh, 99% of these relationships will cease to exist the day that you graduate from high school. And you will move on with your life with all this baggage and all these things that are happening in the present because you failed to have a vision for the future. So faith anticipates a better day. Faith has its eyes on the future. Then lastly, faith moves. Faith moves. Faith acts. Notice the common theme through this book of this chapter of Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Abraham acted. By faith, he did this. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, Noah did this. They acted. They moved. They didn't just sit back and wait for things to happen to them. Faith fires off. Faith shakes. Faith seizes. Faith does something. There's a response. Faith doesn't just sit back and go, you know, Abraham wasn't sitting back going, well, God, I know you've called me, but you just do your kingdom thing, and I'll be over here, man. If you need me, I'm good. I'm, I'm your boy, you know. Call me, God, if you need me. What's he do? He obeys. He goes. Even where there's no certainty in the future. Faith doesn't wait until it gets older. So many of you, you're like, man, when I get older, yeah, when I'm 31, yeah, I'll, I'll press into Jesus then. When I'm 25, when I'm 50, when I've lived my life and I've had an opportunity to kind of experience all that I can experience and drink life into the fullest, then I'll live for God. Faith doesn't wait. Faith moves. That is a, that is a, that is a stupid, foolish position to have. You may not even be alive tomorrow. You may not have a chance. Man, God may move on from you. The Holy Spirit may stop speaking to you. And in these moments where the Spirit is speaking, where God is speaking to you, and your heart is open, and you feel that tension, faith moves. It doesn't wait until it gets older. It doesn't wait for the perfect. It doesn't wait until it's perfect. Some of you guys are waiting, and you're saying, well, man, I'll clean myself up, and one day when I can clean myself up, then I'll come to God. That's ridiculous. You can't clean yourself up. You can't fix it. The problem that you have is in your heart. It's coursing through your veins. You can't fix what's wrong with you. And so if you're waiting for this perfect scenario where you've got it all together, my three-year-old loves yogurt. Some of you still like yogurt. I still like yogurt. Granolas especially. Sprinkle a little yogurt. He loves yogurt. Yogurt with granolas. And uh, a couple months ago, I remember I was uh, watching him eat his yogurt. And... He spilled some of it on the table, as he always does. And uh, for whatever reason, he just had this moment of unselfishness, which is very uncharacteristic of him. And uh, he goes to, over to the counter, and he rips off a napkin, and he goes over and he tries to clean up the mess that he's just made. Now, if you know anything about cleaning up yogurt with a napkin, with a paper product, what happens when you try to wipe up yogurt with a, with a napkin? It smears it, right? It makes it worse. That's what happens when you try to clean yourself up religiously. It's like smearing yogurt. You try to fix it. You try to work it out. You try to, you try to do it in your own strength. And you know what happens? You make it worse. When you try to fix yourself. You try to clean yourself up. Man, you just make a mess of it. So faith doesn't wait until it's perfect. Faith doesn't wait for its friends to move. You know, my friends get it. I mean, it doesn't wait. Faith doesn't wait for ideal scenarios. Faith moves. What I love about Hebrews 11 is that you have this long line of men and women 
Some of them are actually very young. Rahab was a young woman when she hid the spies in her house. She had this group of men and women who, by faith, anticipate a better day. By faith, they have a sense of discontentment that causes them to press into God. And by faith, they move. They act. Abraham went. Noah built the ark. Abel offered his sacrifice. By faith, men and women were eaten by lions and they were sawn in two. And all these things that Hebrews chapter 11 says about men and women, that faith caused them to do certain things in their time for God. I wonder what, um, looking back, what history will say about this group of people. Like in their time, they did what God called them to do. They did their work in their time. By faith, they did these things. Because they looked forward to a better day. They were able to have a vision for the future that caused them to be bold and courageous. And they could grab on to say, yes, it's worth it to wait. And they did incredible things for God and His kingdom. I wonder what the generations that come after us, that come after you, generations that you don't even know yet, your children, your grandchildren, people that come after you, the youth group that comes after you, for those of you who are seniors and you're about to leave, this is your last year in the youth group, what are the, what are the underclassmen going to say about us? What are they going to say about you? By faith, they spend a lot of time playing video games. By faith, they spend a lot of time napping, hanging out around the house. By faith, they thought a lot about what their friends thought of them. And it really kept them from doing anything for God. By faith, and they were incredible athletes, but they never used that platform to really advance their team. By faith, they were some pretty good-looking people. And they fixed themselves up. Some beautiful women, beautiful, good-looking, handsome dudes. Sorry to say that, guys. Just slipped out. And by faith, they were really pretty people. By faith, they had a lot of fun. And they really lived it up. And they're, they're, while they were in high school, man, they, they gave themselves up to every pleasure. And they had, I mean, is that what history is going to say of you guys? Is that what you want them to say of you guys? When you leave this place and as you grow older, like, what are they going to say? This is your time. This is your moment in history. This is your generation. What are they going to say about you? About faith, man, they were bold. They, they believed these promises. I just want to beg you and plead with you to get into the Bible to see that these promises are true. And any adult in here who's over age 30 will tell you that these promises are true. That it is worth it to wait. That it's worth it to believe in these promises because these are not empty promises. And I know that a lot of you have been lied to and I know that a lot of you have had promises broken to you. You've had promises from your parents broken to you. You've had promises from your friends broken to you. You've had promises from your boyfriend broken to you. You know the only person who's never yet broken a promise to you? Jesus. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I am for you. I want your joy. I will forgive you. I will love you. And he's, you, know how, you know how you know for sure that Jesus has kept that promise? God on the cross. The greatest declaration of God's love for you was when he sent Jesus to God on the cross for you. That's how you know God loves you. That's how you know His promises are true. And when God raised Jesus out of that grave on the third day, He confirmed that all of that is true. So do you believe? Are you believing? Are you waiting? Are you trusting? Is there a longing? 
Are you just meant to survive? Are you living the present? Are you living it up? Are you doing what you have to do to survive? And, and then man, what, what, what do you want to be said about you? Do you, you want it to be said that man, they were they were men of faith? I mean, guys, can I just say to you, um, there's unbelievable amount of potential for the kingdom right here on the side of the room. Because I think, as Derek has said to you many times, that men set the pace, that men are pace setters. God has made you that way. And yet many of you are just, you're, you're wasting it, man. You're wasting it. You're living in the moment. Your eyes are out of the future. Your eyes are on right now. And you're, you're, you don't even, some of you don't even care. You could care less. And then you're wasting it. God has made you for this season, for this purpose, to raise you up to be godly men, to set an example in, in purity, to set an example with your mouth, to set an example in the way that you live ferociously for God. You could be a man like Abraham. You could be a man like Moses. You could be a man like Noah, like these men who just gave themselves. Not perfectly, okay? Noah, uh, Noah got drunk, right, when he came off the ark, right? Um, Abraham lied uh, about his wife, Sarah. told him he was, he, she was his sister. So not perfectly, but they gave themselves to God. And they said, man, you, I, I'll be yours. You just use me. I mean, I would love nothing else but to see the, the young men of First Baptist Cleveland rise up and say, man, we will be men of faith. We will be the men who, by faith, we accomplish great things for the kingdom. We're going to use the gifts and the talents and the abilities and the testosterone and the aggression and all these things that we use for the wrong things all the time. We're going we're gonna to focus these things into the kingdom. We're going to do great things together. We're going to get a band of brothers together who just love each other, who just encourage each other. And we're not going to allow any of the other guys in this circle to, to just sell out. And by faith, we're going to be men who do those things, you know, accomplish great things for the kingdom, who believe in the future, who believe that Jesus is better than a girl, that Jesus is better than a rep, that Jesus is better than credibility, that Jesus is better than money, that Jesus is better than anything else that, that you can have in this life. And it starts now. It starts making a decision right now. And I know that it's not cool. I know that it's not cool to respond. I know that it's not cool to get up and walk out and talk to somebody. I know it's not cool to confess your sin. I know it's not cool because we all want to be the cool guy. We all want to kind of sit, sit back. We all want to wait for somebody else to do it. We want to wait for our youth pastors. We want to wait for our parents. We want to wait for everybody else. But the truth is, um, this the decision is yours. And I can't make you. I wish I could get inside your heart and push a button and make you the men of God. But I can't. The Spirit of God has to do that. But I believe in you. I believe that God wants to do something great with you. And so I just want to challenge you guys tonight to respond, to think about um, what you want to be said and to grab all those promises, to believe in Jesus. Hebrews 12 is going to go on to say, look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. If you're struggling, if you're caught up in sin, if you're caught up in rebellion, just look to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Believe in his promises. Because of the truth. Let's bow our heads. Tonight's a simple night. Have faith. <laughs> Have faith. Hope for something greater for yourself than where you currently live. Have a vision for the future of God's promises for you to you that He is He is good and He wants nothing but good for you. And then by faith you move, you act. You stop allowing life to happen to you. You start responding in faith to what God's doing. Right now, God is speaking to some of you. God is calling you away from something. God's calling you to lay down something. God's telling you to walk away from something. God is telling you, I don't know what it is God's saying to you. God is saying to you, believe in my promises. Trust in me. Stop trusting in yourself. Trust in me. I want good for you. 
come to Jesus, man, become a Christian. I don't know what, whatever it is he's saying to you tonight, but I just want to, I want to implore you. I want to encourage you. I want to plead with you. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Look to Jesus. Respond to Jesus. Do not let this opportunity pass you by. And so I'm just going to ask you the same question I've been asking you every night. Who among us tonight, and I just want you to look at me. I want you to look at me. Who among us tonight would say, tonight, I need to believe in Jesus. I'm ready. Not, not, not I need to. I'm ready tonight to start believing in God's promises for you. I want to believe in His promises, and I'm ready to move. I'm ready to act. I'm ready to grab hold of those promises by faith. Start living the kingdom life. Now, it's going to require you to do something. So I'm going to ask you tonight to do something with this. So tonight is a little bit different than last night. I'm not just going to ask you to look at me and then I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you that they're serious to get up tonight and go talk to somebody, to move, to do something about it, to go reconcile with somebody, to do something. Whatever that thing is that needs to be taken care of in terms of your walk with Christ, your walk with God, I'm going to ask you to do something. So if you want to look up at me tonight, I'm going to ask that you actually act on that. So I want you to consider right now in your heart, what, what is it that God is calling me to do? And I want to especially make an appeal to the guys. What is it that God's calling me to do? Who is it that God's calling me to be? What do I need to grab hold of by faith? What do I need to lay aside? What part of my pride I need to set aside and just come to Jesus? So if, if you would say tonight, man, Brandon, I, I know that this is me, but I've been thinking about this, and I've been kind of on the fence, but I, I want to, by faith, believe in those promises. I, I, need to, I need to act on this thing that God's speaking into my heart. I want you just to look up right now. Okay? I want to, I want to do that tonight. I'm ready to believe, okay? I'm ready to believe God's promises to me. I need to move. I need to act. I need to do something. Okay? Okay? Alright? I need to act on that, okay? I need to act on God's promises. I'm ready to believe. Okay? Just look at me right now. Look right now. Okay? Alright? Yeah, I'm ready to act. I'm ready to move. Okay. Alright. Okay. Let's do this. I'm going to pray for you guys. And we're going to sing a song. And again, as we've done the night before, where God is speaking to you, where God is calling you to, to believe, to grab a hold of it by faith. I want you to get up and to respond. To go talk to a leader, go out to the sides. Some of you may just need to do something right there in your seat. That's fine. You may need to get on your knees. You may need to pray. You might need to go talk to somebody else you've got some beef with. It needs to be taken care of tonight. Whatever that is, I want to invite you to do that. But by faith, uh, I'm just going to pray for you, and then I want you to get up and to respond as we sing this last song. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us. God, you love us too much to leave us where we're at. You, you call us to move. You call us to act. You call us to follow. You call us to abandon. You call, call us by faith mighty men and women of God. So God, pray tonight that it be said of this group in First Baptist Cleveland, that by faith they believed your promises for them. They believed in a better vision of the future than what they currently have. And that by faith, this group of people lived in a radical way for Jesus. God, I pray that you would just convict and you would uh, reconcile that you just do a great work in their hearts tonight as they consider what it is you're calling them to do. And I pray that they would move on to Jesus' name. Any medication, go now. And pick up five pieces of trash on your way out. Pick up five pieces of trash on your way out. I see people walking away without trash. Come back. Come back. Come pick up trash.